Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. My guest today is Harry Fagel. Harry is a captain with the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. He's a native Las Vegan, a UNOV graduate with a degree in criminal justice. Harry is a published poet, a spoken word poet, a philosopher, a passionate husband, a proud father. He was my youth group advisor, and in many ways a big reason why I'm here right now talking into a microphone, and we'll elaborate on that a little bit with a story. Harry, thank you for being here. Thank you, Haim. I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for your kindness. That It's always good to know that you've had some influence in this world. Sometimes we wander around not realizing we have any. So influence, I think, will be a big theme of what we talk about today. Influences for me in my life, influences for you and your life. I've got some names here that I've dug up from your past that I'm really curious to know more about. So I've given my piece, but in your own words, tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Uh, my name is Harry Fagel, uh, and um, you said it pretty well, native Las Vegas. I moved to around six weeks old, but I call it. I'm, it's close enough. Oh, yeah. Six weeks old. I didn't have a whole lot of Kind of like now, if you're here for five years, you're a native. No. The only thing I wasn't was born, but I was raised here my whole life since I was an infant. And uh, a couple times moving to other places. But I, I love Las Vegas. I'm Vegas through and through. Um, Grew up here all through school, all the schools from elementary, kindergarten, all the way through college. I am a UNLV graduate in criminal justice, uh, minored in communications, and uh, never quite finished that minor, but got quite a bit of stuff done on it. You have Th- more uh, on-the-job training in communications than yeah, a degree? than most people will ever <laughs> see in their lifetime. I've been a police officer for 25 years um, with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, the finest police department in the United States of America, possibly the world. Uh, and I say that uh, without tongue-in-cheek because I, I believe we're probably the most progressive police department right now. And we're also neck-and-neck neck with all the best at a minimum. And I'll, I, we can elaborate on that a little bit later. I've been really fortunate to be a part of that uh, place for so long. But, I mean, I also worked in the casino business growing up here. I've been in the—I uh, was a bartender, too. I've, I've had all kinds of experiences. So, But the police has been uh, an amazing experience, and I'm coming to the end of my journey. And retiring soon in I think 27 days, so uh, it's uh, I'm seeing the next chapter. I'm also a published poet, like you said. Uh, I've been writing poetry since I was a a ute. <laughs> and, <laughs> the two utes. Uh, the utes, uh, <laughs> and uh, I've been fortunate with that too because I have been published in quite a few anthologies, proudly in the Nevada Literature Compendium. What's an anthology? It's a collection of poetry from a variety of poets. So uh, there's a bunch of anthologies out there of work, and I'm in several of them. But what I'm most proud of is the is the Nevada uh, Anthem of Literature, which is basically a compendium of literature for Nevada. Uh, one time I received a Hilliard grant, went up to UNR and taught my second book in a class there. I was a guest lecturer on their dime. Those are the things that, for as a poet, you know, success as a poet's weird. It's not like being a successful novelist or a mm-hmm. successful actor where the money comes rolling in you know you usually don't make any money at poetry till you've been dead for 100 years so 
uh, I've had some success in my mind, and uh, I've been really lucky to be around some other great poets that have helped influence me and, and shape uh, that success. So I've been a poet, a cop, I'm a dad uh, of two incredible people. Um, Sam and Jake. Sam and Jake, and they're just marvelous. And then my wife. How old, a, sorry, how old are Sam and Jake? Sam's going to be 21, and Jake is turning 16 this Saturday, so uh, they're, uh, don't try to steal their identity either. I'm watching you. <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> to do you. that. Not you. That's out to the public. Yeah. Right now, my job is uh, I'm the Theft Crimes Bureau Commander for Metro, so under my wing is uh, robbery, which is a violent crime, obviously. It's where somebody... A commercial robbery, actually, where somebody comes into a business with a with a weapon or with threats of violence, and takes things that don't belong to them. And then uh, I also run uh, the Viper Task Force, which is it's under me as well, which is a, a the organized kind of auto theft ring people, the guys that steal cars, chop them up, and sell them. Uh, that happens here folks. in Vegas. Oh yeah, it sure does. And then uh, I have the, and then we also do the prolific car thieves under that. So it's not, there's what's no more a, auto. What's a prolific theft. car thief? Someone steals cars every day, pretty much. Um, that's like their. That's their. That's their job. Yeah. Until we catch them, and then I have financial crimes. So, uh, if I sounded paranoid before, it's because I run right now. The the folks that work for me are brilliant investigators of fraud, mm-hmm. forgery, identity theft, cybercrime, mm-hmm. intrusion. All of the stuff that you read about that you're like, oh, my God, how is this happening? The skimming, the car- credit card skimming, and there's so much of that going on that it's mind-blowing. So on that, uh, I call January forecasting season in my industry. The business community here and, and specifically in real estate, and there was a panel of you know extremely accomplished professionals from all the industries, and John Guidry, who's the head of Bank of Nevada here in town, You know, at the very end of these forecasting things, they ask questions like, what inning do you think we're in? And then they ask, like, what keeps you up at night? And what keeps him up at night is cybercrime because he sees it from the banking side with their with their clients. Well, it's uh, I didn't realize. I mean, you read I read a lot and I try to stay abreast of everything that uh, pertains to law enforcement in my field, especially where I'm, I'm responsible. So when I moved to this unit, I had a little catching up to. I was aware of these things, but I really took a deep dive into this stuff. And it is it's really quite unbelievable the amount of money that is being stolen and the amount of of, of uh, data that is being stolen and manipulated and these uh, folks out there that are spending all of their waking time trying to find ways not just to steal money uh, but to steal secrets and to obviously uh you know mess with governments and and there's there's state actors that are out there doing things too so to your department at metro is dealing with things at, the, at a level where it's Government, it's cyber. Secret? We have a we. I have a cyber crimes task force with the FBI. So yes, they do wow. anything that has to do with it. Now, when it reaches a certain level, obviously it goes to another level. But we're we we have that task force now. I, I, mean, I really can't speak to it. Sure, but it's uh, it is a significant problem, and it can be the intrusion can be just. A, we have major uh, major banks, hotels here, everything. So it's they have to be vigilant and. Mm-hmm. It is never. It's always evolving. That's what's hard to keep up with it. So it's and pretty it's neat. Like but I'm not. I'm going to lose these guys. Uh, they're actually moving into a new unit. There's actually a whole digital technology bureau that's coming wow. online at Metro. Uh, that's going to be part of their job. Is is this type of stuff? Um, so let's put an emphasis. When you said earlier, it's the best police force on planet Earth. This is an example of why you think that. I mean, this is progressive stuff. It's very progressive. But you know, I it's it's interesting because from the law enforcement perspective. 
uh, it's cutting edge. From the forensics, it's cutting edge. From our MOUs, which are memorandums of understanding that we have with other agencies, you know, we work very, very close in partnership with the best agencies in the world as well, the FBI, the you know, Department of Homeland Security, and on and on, ATF. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving some out, but the, the bottom line is, <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, it's also the social side, uh, the, the community involvement. We have uh, p- really pushed the envelope, um, and I don't know if I need a pop mic to say that, push the envelope, but uh, luckily we've had some really forward-thinking leadership, uh, and a lot of the problems that are happening with the police around the country over the last decade uh, we have really, really worked to stay ahead of by spending much time and much energy making inroads with our community. Uh, that's where I speak to progressiveness the most. It's the most important because at the end of the day, uh, when you go out there, we're guardians, we're protectors, and we can't do it without the public's cooperation. And you don't just get the public's cooperation because you said so. Mm-hmm. You have to earn that cooperation. And I think that... I believe, in fact, that we have done a really good job. We're not done. We have more to do. But Metro really has taken the ball and has set a a real example for the rest of police to look at and go, hey, you need to get ahead of the things in your community and make sure that you're making these inroads before things happen. And we've made our mistakes. And, you know, everybody makes mistakes. And, and, and organizations are run by people, and people make mistakes. So you're going to have failures, and it, it's what you do with those failures. It's how you process your uh, those failures into successes, I guess is the best way to put it. And it's the same in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the business world. That's why I'm so proud of You guys are public and it's amplified if there's a mistake. It's but way then you still amplified. have to, like you said, how do you treat it? Look so around I- the country and see how it's treated. And when you start to look at it as an aggregate, there are a lot of folks that need to catch up. And the problem is, is that all of that sounds great on paper. And, it, you know, when we sit in boardrooms and talk about it. But at the end of the day, there's people at the end of these decisions and these um, strategies. And if those strategies are forgetting about that, then they're, they're going to pay for it. And we've seen it happen again and again. So I'm very proud of the agency for and the people that it's really the people um, that make up the agency that have had the thinking, the forward thinking uh, ability to see the future enough to say, hey, we have to make some changes in our business and the way we do business if we're going to continue to do business and make this community the safest in America. It, that's a it's a great vision, mm. uh, and it's a it's it may seem lofty, but visions often are. But I I have it is what has driven me in the last many years of my career. Uh, I believe that you know I raised my children here, my friends. Chaim, you live here. That's right. Too. You're my friend. And uh, all the great people that I've been fortunate enough to know, I worry about them. I want them to be safe. And I'm, I hope that that is imparted. You know, I hope that people realize that we really do care. It's clear that you, you yourself walk the talk. And I feel like we can do an entire episode on just this topic. And maybe, maybe we do that. But I want to shift here a bit. And I want to ask you to tell me about your wife, Leilani. Well, Leilani is the love of my life. Um, I mean, honestly, behind every great human there's another human, (laughs) you know, usually I don't want to say it's the wife or the husband, but having the support of someone who accepts you for who you are is a powerful thing. It truly is. And if you look at leaders around the world, um, very often they have someone with them that's supporting them and they don't do it on their own. It's like everything else. It's always a team effort. Mm. And there's no better team player than my wife, Leilani. There's just nobody better. And she's beautiful on the inside, beautiful on the outside. Uh, 
conscientious and truly just an incredible human being. Very, very intelligent, quick, and but at the same time, she calls herself an introvert, which I just have a tough time buying. Compared to me, maybe she's an introvert, but she's she's social. She's very adept socially, and uh, you've met Lay, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm just I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky. She's a great mom too. And we have two boys, as you know. Yep. So, uh, and I know we'll touch on that a little bit more. I've she's my muse in a lot of ways. I run a lot of my poetry, almost 100 percent of my poetry through her. Uh, to get a feel on it, she's very, very honest. And the one thing about the Fagels is, is that honesty, we've always felt, is the best policy. Uh, you know, in life, you don't just get that. You don't just, you're not just born telling the truth, I don't think. I think you learn to tell the truth. And I think you learn when to tell the truth. And really, you want to tell the truth as much as possible. Now, people would say, well, you tell the truth all the time. Well, yes, but you're not, the true truth is not going to be that. It's not going to be that way. You're not going to always tell everybody exactly what's in your heart. In fact, they don't get to know. Those are the secrets that we keep. But you should be honest in your endeavors. And I've learned in my life that not being honest has always resulted in pain for me and for others. So, and then by being honest, I found that it still results in pain sometimes, but it's less pain. And my integrity remains intact. Uh, you can't have your integrity intact if this you're is, bullshit. This is Harry the philosopher coming out. Yeah, a little bit. You caught me with two hours sleep on eight cups of coffee, so this awesome. should be interesting. This is going to be a great show. <laughs> so you, you talked a little bit about your, you know, from Vegas, you're Vegas through and through. You have deep roots here. You also have some colorful characters in your family. Yeah. Bring sure that to life. Share a story or two. Uh, well, which which one? I mean, my grandparents came here in the 50s. You know, they were amazing people. My grandfather had a, a barbecue place over, started out with a barbecue joint over at where White Cross sits now, uh, in in the, what was called over by the Market Stratosphere Town, Market Town. Yeah, back then, uh, my cousin Freddie Glussman has lived here even longer, and my grand my grandfather pretty much he brought my grandfather here. Later on down the road, my grandfather worked for Circus Circus. Uh, my father, who was a very interesting guy, he worked for Circus Circus for Jay Sarno running junkets. Uh, from out of town into uh, Circus Circus until he pissed off Mike Ensign. Then he didn't work there anymore. Senator? No, uh, he was. I don't. He might be a senator now. I don't know if he ever was, but my, at the time he was uh, involved. Okay. He was the comptroller over at Circus. Um, I was six years old sitting in Jay Sarno's office. I'll never forget it. And uh, uh, eating a, an apple, and he was a way larger than life character. Jay was, uh, and obviously a man of great vision as well. Uh, you know, Circus Circus being a unique. Endeavor, and then Caesar's Palace as well, which he also built. And you know, his dream was uh, the Grandissimo. It's going to be his next thing, and then that never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Grandissimo was his final vision, but he never, he unfortunately passed away. But it's interesting because in the smallness of this city, his daughter Heidi is my friend. We've been friends for many, many years, and her husband um, is probably the best estate planning attorney in the region. Uh, that's David Strauss. You know, he's married to Heidi, and they're great friends. And uh, I feel it's so neat to know that I was a little kid sitting there, and my father and him were, they were a couple of, of bros <laughs> back in the day <laughs> in the 60s, right? And then now, you know, I'm friends with uh, his daughter, and, and their whole family's been really wonderful. And also, the same with, with, with David Strauss. He's just a great guy. So it's small town again. You know, it's if you grew up here, uh, you just tend to know people from and, all over. And your cousin Freddie oh, my cousin owns Freddy. Piero's, the he, restaurant? Yes, he does, among other um, things. And he's... He's a great guy, and you know, I, it's funny because when I was in between jobs many, many years ago before I was a policeman, 
you know, he gave me a job. And what was really interesting is my dad and him did not get along. And my dad was breaking my balls pretty hard. And I'm like, Dad, he, he gave me a job. He put food on my table. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you got to get, get real with it. Mm. And to his credit, my father finally gave in and realized, hey, this man did me a solid. And uh, I think he was just a little jealous. I think that's all it was. And afterwards, when mm-hmm. I talked to him, I go, I still love you, Dad. This man put food on my table. I'm always going to respect him. And to this day, uh, my cousin has been um, a great, just a great friend. And he's always, he always makes me smile. If you know Freddie, he's, he's a character. He's got more stories than probably anybody in this town from having the restaurant for so long and I all bet. the very interesting people that were in and out of there. But I was a bartender there for, for some time. What years were you a bartender there, roughly? Oh, back in the 90s, so early, early 90s, late 80s. So it must have been 90. I would say 90. I can't wow. know if I'm thinking back. 90, 91, maybe 90. Maybe it was actually 93. Maybe it was ninety three. I'd have to I'd have to figure it out ahead of time, but it was in early nineties. It was before I tested from and got on the metro. Uh, and the last job I had before I went to metro was I was a uh, blackjack dealer over at Treasure Island. So, you know, I've done a few. You've been around, <laughs> been around. But bartending at Piero's was interesting. I met some really fascinating, bigger than life people like Jackie Gone and and Frank Fertitta Senior and. Don King, and you know, it just the list goes on. <laughs> Kirk Akorian, who was a great guy, and the mayor at the time, Oscar Goodman, used to come in there, and oh, I also sat behind him in Temple, so I knew him from childhood. But it was uh, it was a real who's who gallery in there, and it still is to this day. Uh, I go in and have dinner once in a while, and I love to see Freddie. He always has, he always brings a smile to me because he's he to me, you know, he took care of me, and mm-hmm. he's you know, so I I appreciated it. I've never forgotten it, and I always take care of him too. It's a perfect jump-off point. This show is called Takeaways, and it's about my takeaways from the people who have influenced me. So I want to ask you, what has been the single most influential thing or event in your life that's defined or shaped you the most? Well, see, I looked at this question pretty hard because to come up with a singular event, like a watershed moment that polarized everything for me, uh, very difficult. However, I do think I have it. It's just that there's been many things that have been you know, uh, what I call traumatic. And trauma not being painful, trauma being life-affecting, okay? Hmm. But when I was 19 years old, um, I was in a a very difficult place in my life. I uh, had a really dark outlook. I felt very lonely, and I was looking at my influence on the world, where I stood at that moment. I was in college. I think I was in my second year at UNLV. And I felt disconnected from everything. Even though I was, a, I had, I was in a fraternity. I was a, one of the uh, chartering members of SIGEP then. They got in trouble later. But when, I, I was rushed by a couple fraternities. But I, and I had rushed a couple. I was approached. And, you know, every, I had a lot of friends in Kappa SIG and this and that. But then this, there's this new fraternity. I got to be part of this new charter. And they're, you're a leader, were, and here you go. Big, they were big nationwide, but they weren't on UNLV's mm-hmm. campus. And I thought it'd be cool to be a charter member. So I had that going. And, but I was really, really down. Uh, and I was thinking, I got into this, into this mindfulness at that time. Um, at 19 years old? At 19, yeah. Because I'd made a lot of mistakes up to that point. And, you know, we all do, hopefully. The more mistakes we make, hopefully, the more we learn and, and grow from them. And we don't repeat them. But I'd grown a lot between 15 and 19. A lot of things had happened. And uh, I was almost 20. And I just realized I, I wasn't connected to anything. And I made a decision, a literal decision, 
in my life, I said, there's only two ways this goes. I either just go down into the pit of despair and I never come out. And who knows what that means? It can mean a lot of things. None of them good. Or I need to start connecting myself to the world. Everything I do now, I'm going to connect myself to people. I'm going to become important to myself and to everyone that I meet. I'm going to touch them in some way. I made it a a goal inside myself to try to reach people mm. and to connect myself. It was a, if you imagine a web where that was disconnected and not connected to anything and then trying to reach out and start to connect myself to That's the world. That's so profound for it, anyone, especially a 19 year old. Where did that wisdom come from? I, I'm not really sure. Uh, the great void, the spirit world, the an epiphany. I hate that word sometimes, but I, I can't explain it any other way because it truly was a, a moment I have never forgotten. I was so down and I was, I was out. I remember I can, I could give you the whole thing, but at the end of the day, I just was in my head and I realized that this was my choice and I had to make a decision and the decision was to connect myself. So from that point forward, my life began to go into a totally different direction. It began to improve in ways un, unimagined before. And while I faced many challenges like everybody else in my life since then, um, I have connected myself to the world in so many ways um, and touched so many people, and that has been my purpose. To And, and I, sometimes it takes an outsider to show you the way. You, say, you talk about where do you get this wisdom, but you, it came from there, and then late, I get reminders. You know, People will tell me um, how I said something at a moment in their life, and it mattered. Or um, they'll say, hey, you know, you... You really, thanks for doing what you do. I, I remember at the time. and I'll remind you of a specific with me, but we'll get to that. Uh, all right. Uh, in a profound way, I have a friend whose name is J.J. Wiley, and he owns Grouchy John's Coffee along with his partner, John, and he is one of the kindest people I've ever met in my entire life. But he told me, he goes, you know, you bring people together, and I know part of this connectivity is I do bring people together. I actually bring of a wide variety. It doesn't always work out. It doesn't always end up perfect, but... I've connected a lot of people, not just to me, but to each other. And that's what I do. And it's like, that's my uh, spiritual side. I think that's what I do spiritually. And then, you know, uh, it has led to uh, having amazing friendships that have lasted many, many years. And like I said, it always doesn't always work out. But when it does, it's pretty, pretty amazing. And it's worked out a lot. And I have a lot of people that have touched me and given me the gift of their, of their friendship throughout these years since I had that, uh, that epiphany. So let me take you back to that moment, that decision that you made to start connecting. I, could, I mean, I could really picture what you're describing. You're 19 years old. You just came off of a few years of stuff happening in life. I can imagine what that is. Family-related, I'm guessing. Uh, you you're just don't feel like you're, you're not here. You're not there. You're not... It didn't matter. You didn't... Um, let's use your words. It didn't matter. And you make a decision to connect. Do you remember the first thing you did? The first... I, a reach out that you wanted to connect to? Strangely enough, the first thing I did was I was in a parking lot at UNLV, and there were two girls walking by, and I just said hi to them. It was, it was nighttime. And they said hi, and I said, how are you guys? And I just, I just asked them about themselves. And they, you know, they smiled, went on their way, and I was like, okay, that's, that's connection. I'm going to just keep going with that. So that, that, was, that was the first one I remember. And it didn't have to be that easy. It's that easy. It's, it's, uh, and it, and it's built on that obviously. And then the poetry side of me is obviously connective as well. And I had not realized the power of that until later. 
uh, was probably about 25 when I started to realize how powerful that connection would be uh, in say, say more about that bringing people together well I've always written poetry since I was a kid but um, I got you know when we're young uh, and especially the way I grew up and the family situation I grew up in and, and the things that happened uh, and everybody has their crucibles that they go through but uh, one of the things was I, I'm sure that I was seeking acceptance that I couldn't get from my father uh, just because of for a variety of reasons so when you're seeking acceptance sometimes uh, you allow people to have a little too much influence on uh, on your happiness or your sadness or any influence at all and I wrote a poem that I was very proud of and this guy who was, who's now today I won't mention his name but he's a professional writer uh, and he basically panned me and said I was terrible and uh i was about 17 16 17 and uh he gave me some advice but it was couched in this negativity and so uh i quit writing poetry for a few years <laughs> after that wow. because i was like well this guy is great he's a, he really knows what he's doing so if he's saying my work sucks then Maybe I should find something else to do uh, and because I just didn't have that self-confidence yet. It took me realizing that, hey, um, that uh, that opinion really didn't matter and that the, the true test is to persevere and really test it out, not just with one person, <laughs> but with many and see what the results are before you make a decision to stop a talent that you have. That's why I implore, you know, when somebody tells a kid that they suck at something, you know, somebody told Michael Jordan he, would never play varsity basketball, okay? He didn't listen, fortunately, for the world, right? And for the Chicago Bulls. Uh, children, uh, oftentimes, they hear this negativity and they give up some some part of themselves. Because talent, there's this, you know, some people are born with these incredible talents, but they're the, they're the odd exception. Most talent is, there's a little bit of talent, and then it's built upon mm -hmm. and built upon and built upon and practiced and refined until it becomes something that looks easy, but it's really not. It looks natural, but it really isn't. It's just been put to that level. And I think that we, I, you know, we, we can't, we need to be cognizant of that when we're critiquing people. Uh, if they're asking for our criticism, you know, you should be honest, but you should also be understanding that your opinion is exactly that it's an opinion and that you know one guy's trash is another guy's treasure mm -hmm. and we see it again and again and when you look out around the world people that are successful are oftentimes just because they believe in themselves it really doesn't matter what anyone else thinks uh now there's deluded people too that you know beat their head on the wall and again and again and again and like i said you have to put it into a larger arena to decide if you can be successful at it you have to kind of put it out there so there's a there's a nugget here i want to unpack a little bit you got some advice and opinion and it was couched in uh, negativity right which just stopped your craft for a couple years yeah and the person who gave you that advice didn't have the awareness maybe but there's always a choice now now you're you're talking about something else which is apparent in your personality where if someone asks you for your opinion, you can give it to them, but you can give it to them in a way where it's couched in positivity. And on the one hand, advice couched in negativity was destructive for you. On the other hand, if, some, if he gave you that same advice just couched in a positive way, if he said maybe, look, Harry, it's a good start. If you want to continue doing this, here's how you should focus on it, not you suck, which made you just stop. If he had said that to you, it could have had a creative impact on your life. But... There's also power in angst, and pain gives you power too. So sometimes it's good to hear 
something negative. We we some we we sometimes get too caught up in positivity. I think um, there's a book, that, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. It's pretty popular right now. Oh yeah. But I think that the overarching theme of that book is that don't be afraid of the negative. You know, and the, the fact that the negative can help shape things too. Uh, we we get too positive, and we're all hippy dippy happy crappy running around, big smiles plastered on our face, saying everything's great. Everyone well, gets a trophy. That's absolute bullshit. Okay, that's bullshit. That's not how life is. And and in my opinion, um, while my poetry is redolent with hope, which it is, I, I always have hope in my poetry because I believe it has power. If I put it, if I choose as an artist to put it out in the world, it has some power. It's a, it's like a little bit of power, and I choose to do it that way. I try not to leave people with a bad taste in their mouth. Okay, but that's my choice. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that there isn't bad taste in your mouth. It doesn't mean that the world doesn't have darkness and dark corners. And it doesn't mean that there people don't lose sometimes and lose everything, even though it's completely unfair. And I think that we we tend to judge. You know, all of a sudden it's like if someone's a loser, that they're somehow a bad person. You know, we've got this concept that winning is everything, and that we've come become. It's real nasty. Mm-hmm. You know, winning is just the other side of losing. Losing is the other side of winning. They have to both exist. You can't do one without the other. You know what I mean? Nothing successful ever happened without failure. But this way of looking at things is a great pressure on people. It's a terrible... How should we look at it? As, as, the, as the gamut of experience, you know, and the more experience you have, the more complete you are. That's it. So one loss doesn't make you a loser. No. It gives you more experience. Right. And positive or negative, it can send you in one trajectory or another. Exactly. And it has energy. And so how you deal with that energy, you know, and if it takes you, even if it takes you in a negative way, the more aware you become, the more aware you become of yourself and of your consciousness, um, the more ability you have to deal with some of the negative things where that, that can drive you down. I mean, you know, I mean... I've told police officers since I was a young cop. I, I when I got I was married before I got divorced, you know, and I went to a counselor, um, James Chalker, who is a incredible human being, and he gave me tools to help me with those issues. And then later on, when I was dealing with police issues, which is a something that every cop goes through, no matter how tough you are, you're you're getting chipped away at by the things that you experience, and uh, especially if you're out there in the street or you're doing a job out there where you're encountering. Uh, this random violence and random chaos, it chips away at you. And I recommend that they get counseling. And it's, it's helped me tremendously throughout my career. It's made me a stronger person, given me tools. I think that there's a, no, no, no police want to see themselves as weak and they're afraid, oh, it's a sign of weakness. I think they're getting better at understanding it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength to be able to say, hey, if I'm a, if I'm a warrior and I know how to use my tools of, of, of the trade of war, well, uh, one of the tools is to be strong in mind, and you can't do that on your own. You have to, it's like the ma- you go to the master swordsman to learn how to do a sword. So how do you control your mind? How do you, how do you get your mind where it needs to be to face And you're saying it's, it's inevitable. Cops at the end of the day are human beings. Exactly. And seeing the trauma and the violence chips away at that humanity. It chips so away at So how do you your... bring yourself, what tools do you have in your arsenal to bring you back to being a human? Well, there's, there's a, it depends on That's the That's what you're saying, right? Yes, okay. and, and, and that yeah. the mind... We don't get all the tools. We don't get all the answers. Uh, you know, maybe we do. Maybe it's in some, maybe some people have it. You know, the, the Eckhart Tolle's of the world who sit on a park bench for a couple of years and the guy figures out the power of being in the moment, right? It's a really fascinating story. But not everybody has that level of genius, you know. And for me, it, I certainly don't. I'm just an average fella. 
And I just uh, I needed some tools, and that's why I recommend that kind of stuff. And we got sidetracked here. I know we did. Oh, but. we're right in it. And here's I'll, I'll bring <laughs> us I'll bring us back to where we were. We started out with a story about this well-known writer who you respected at the time gave you some advice that was negative and right. I'm going to say, in a way, destructive to your your career as a poet. And for then, a time. For a time, and then well, it could have been forever, but for, it was for a time because that was your choice. And then on the other side, I want to ask you about. And this is what we're going into the takeaways portion. This is one of my takeaways from you. I want to ask you about David Figler and Steve Custer and what they did for you. So who is David Figler? Let's start with David Figler is a childhood friend uh, who's now an attorney here in Las Vegas. He's well-known. He's also a poet, uh, artist, a spoken word artist, a a storyteller, a bit of a politician. Uh, He's helped other people with politics, and he's a, a really nice man. And I grew up with him at Temple Beth Shalom, and uh, he was doing some open mic stuff back in the 90s uh, when I was a young police officer. And uh, I began thinking, hey, I could do this. I could write these things. I can speak these things. And so I went to him and asked him about it, you know, and he said, well, you don't need my opinion. You need the opinions of strangers, right? He says, so you need to get up and read in front of strangers and let their feedback guide you on whether you're doing a good job or not. My opinion doesn't matter. Your friends don't matter. Your family doesn't matter. Don't listen to them because they're just going to say you're good, even if you suck. So listen to strangers. See the reactions. And so he kind of built me a foundation to test my work in a different way, especially my spoken work. Because, you know, when somebody reads something, they're getting it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I've always said poetry is meant to be read aloud. I believe that it is to this day. Even when I read other poets that I love, I always read them aloud when I want to get the full sense of what they're doing or what I want out of it. Whether it's Edgar Allan Poe or Dr. Seuss, I want to read it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you just for what I love, what attracted me to the spoken word. This is, I'll, I'll just kind of digress and we'll come back to David Figler and, and your open mic experience with him. I was traveling for my fraternity the year after I graduated college. So this is my first job out of college. I'm in a car. I'm going around the country. Um, I was parked up with one of our alumni in Boston and at the time he had this, uh, you know, state of the art home entertainment system with, uh, it was like HBO on demand. So I, I don't know, there was a snowstorm. I couldn't leave the house for two days. So I listened to uh deaf poetry jam. I watched, I should say, I watched deaf poetry jam for a day and a half, pretty much every episode that was out because it was on demand. And now, I'm in the solitude of traveling around the country by myself, going to universities to meet strangers. So I've got a lot of reflection time, a lot of windshield time, and I've got this huge influence now, this thing that just sparked something inside me, Deaf Poetry Jam, hearing the spoken word. And similar to you, it was, I could do this. So I started writing. I mean, this is like, I'm massively reflective, just finished college, I'm in my first job, but it's not really a, a real job, it's still kind of safe. And everything is like who I want to be, who I was, mistakes, uh, you know, points of passion. All that is coming through with this influence. And then I'm going to leave that there for now. We'll go back to David and we'll use that again as a jump off point into my takeaway from you, which is just starting. So, David, you find David, open mic. He says, you got to just do it and let the audience. So he put you up on, gave you, I guess, the foundation to go up on stage and see how people react to you. Yeah, and it was uh, Cafe Roma, 4440 Maryland Parkway, which became my home away from home. And I started to do uh, the open mic poetry readings. And I was very aggressive. 
I was rollerblading probably 50 miles plus a week. I was in very good shape at the time, very aggressive. And I think I, I had my own flavor. And I I look at some of the poetry I wrote back then, and it's um, I had a foundation, like I said, from childhood to write poetry. So, And my style was starting to develop, and I had a certain style. And David got me into a lot of different things. But the one thing he couldn't do, Steve Custer did. And that was get me to read poetry in front of cops. So who is Steve Custer? Steve Custer is a retired now sergeant from Metro, did 39 years uh, as a policeman. He was the consummate street cop. And he took me under his wing when I was a young officer, taught me how to be compassionate and to have heart for the people that I policed. He was brilliant with that. Um, Never lost sight of why we were doing what we were doing. Um, And we had a good time doing it. So it was a great, it was a very monumentally influential time for me. Uh, and he's still my friend to this day, one of my closest friends, in fact. And uh, But he told me that I should read my poetry. He, he came to a poetry reading, and, and he said, you need to, he talks, he's, he's got like Tourette's, you know, he's like, hey, cocksucker, you need to read this in front of the <laughs> cops. And I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not reading this. <laughs> There's no way, That's a, you don't know a tough crowd until you've stood in a briefing room, and he's like, well, then you're a pussy. <laughs> I wasn't putting up with that shit, so... Yeah. I said, all right, I'm reading. You got your, your core, didn't you? He did. Yeah. He knew. And so I did. And I wasn't sure how it was going to go. So you're reading. So where I, are you? Where is this? At the briefing. station? Yeah, in the station. Okay, so bri- right before we, the briefing, the way that works is every day, cops gather, the patrol guys gather, and they discuss uh, crime trends in their area, wanted people that we're looking for, safety issues that have been noticed, all kinds of shit. And then we go out on the street. And so where where did he put you right on, the, the, room, on the agenda? Uh, yeah, no, no, was no, it right after? All right, right after hey guys, we, we're gonna do a briefing, but before we start, here's no, Harry, no, was, or was it, it was, here's it was, everything? Yeah. And before you go, here's Harry. Yeah, before you go out on the All street, right. uh, here's Harry. And uh, I did two poems, and I can remember what one of them was. It was this poem about being single, because because <laughs> <laughs> at the time I was divorced when this was happening, and I, and I was single, and uh, the poem was about how when you're married. When but when you're single, you're fine. Then you get married, and then you get gas, and then when you get divorced, you still have gas. <laughs> it was a really funny poem, and so these yeah. guys are laughing. And then I did a serious piece because I always I didn't want to be seen as a, just a jokester. I mm. wanted to I wanted people to know, hey, I'm an artist. I'm not just even though there is an art to humor, obviously, mm. but I wanted to say hey, I got a serious side too. So I I did. So what I would do whenever they would have me read, which was more often than you would believe. Um, I would always do a serious piece with a funny piece, and I usually finish with the funny piece, right? And so uh, I kept I kept doing it, and I did it in front of the captain, and he was very skeptical. And then he liked it. And that was then Doug Gillespie who became the sheriff. Oh wow! And what was interesting is that led to the police department kind of putting me forward there as like, hey, here's our poet, right? And I embraced that, and they did, and it was an incredible symbiosis because I. Then some people said, hey, could you write a poem for this, for this thing? And I said, yeah. And then it became some eulogies for some people that had passed away, uh, some police officers. And then, of course, Henry Prendez, my friend, God rest his soul, was murdered. And somebody said, hey, could you could you write a poem for, for him? They'd heard me read somewhere. And so this mm-hmm. started to happen, and it became much bigger than me and what I was able to do. This now became a responsibility. And I know that sounds weird, but it's a responsibility because now people are asking you to talk about their loved ones who have passed away and do it in such a way that it's appropriate and powerful 
and meaningful and don't fuck it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I you do. can't fuck there's it pressure. up. There's pressure. There's immense pressure there. So, uh, uh, but it was a gift too. And if it wasn't for Steve Custer, I don't know that I would have ever read poetry in front of the police. I don't know. I doubt it. And it wasn't like mull over the process and what does it look like? It was just like David said, you got to just do it and get the feedback. And exactly. then Steve on the other side, it's you're going to do it and see how it goes. Or you're a pussy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so I so, was like, all right, well, I guess I'm doing it. But and, and then as I got feedback, I started to realize I actually had a talent with this, that my fears of not having any talent were, were wrong. And that in my quest to connect myself to people, this was the vehicle that I could use. This was truly a vehicle for connection. And uh, it still is. And when I retire in 27 days, it will be my primary vehicle for connection rather than being a policeman. Um, I want to give a specific on that to really make sure I understand what you mean by a connection. And I'll talk about, um, I'll use a piece you did, a brief note for Dallas. So if anybody is interested in what Harry's actually talking about, go to YouTube, search Harry Fagel, and there's plenty of, of poems that, you can hear Harry performing. Um, some of them are, if you dig down deep from, you know, First Fridays of downtown Las Vegas, you know, Harry Fagel reads poetry, to these are now produced pieces that Metro is doing. A brief note for Dallas, just some context there. This was um, an event that happened in Dallas. There was some protests going on. This is around, you correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, and then it became... Blue Lives Matter, the police, and now there's this divide between people thinking that they are, or feeling like, not thinking, feeling like they are being, uh, having prejudice against them, and rising up and having prejudice against police. And there was this protest going on, and there were snipers that killed police. Like, they staged this thing. Actually, uh, there was one guy who was a sniper. So it wasn't snipers, there okay. was one guy. And it was a protest. Uh and the police were there to protect the protesters, as often we do. Um, and this person decided to murder police officers. He killed five police officers. And you wrote a piece about that. Yes. And it's a brief note for Dallas. And if you listen to it, it's you know, exactly what you said. We are police. We're here to protect protesters who are, the irony is, protesting the police. And there's a tragedy that occurred against the police. And these are human beings. These are husbands and fathers and sons and daughters and wives that are going to protect strangers. And they're killed. Yes. And this is you. This is you using your art to connect people where there's this divide. However, you being a voice for the police through this art brings us back together to help us understand each other. And you go to the, the honesty on both sides, in my opinion, of the piece. I agree, and it, it, otherwise, it would it, polarizing things is a bad idea when you're trying to connect things. If you polarize, then you don't connect. So, but you have to be honest to both. You have to give both their due, and that is the great conundrum we all face right now. I think in our world is that we're not riding, we're not recognizing um, people that think differently. Uh, I wrote a poem several years ago and there's a line in it and it keeps it's resonating with me right now this last several months and it's vive la différence then kill the outsider <laughs> that's it that's the line <laughs> what does viva, that mean to you it means yeah. long live difference kill the different it's we live in this hypocrisy where we want to be 
a free society and to respect everyone, and yet we fall back on our devolvement, and it's, a, it's not right. We've got to move on from that and find a middle of the road because there is no way we're going to the extremes. It's not going to happen. It's not how human beings operate. We, those are for despot countries where people are under tyranny. That's where that happens. In the United States of America, people have to find common ground. That's just the way it is. Amen. And I, you know, it's just we're we're in tough we're in a tough situation because we need to we need to find that center. And you know, the great philosophers say the center can't hold that everything fails. I get that, but uh, just knowing that isn't enough to give up. We need to keep working on that because we still need to evolve. We still find ourselves back in our lizard brain way and we need to get away from that so deep let me uh, there's a lot of real estate agents out there that are probably want to sell me property now because <laughs> interesting <laughs> right I'll i'm an you, easy i'm an easy soft sell i'll sell you some property now that you're they're going to be a wealthy retiree um i want to oh. i want to i want to kind of go back to you talked about connection we talked about what david figler and steve custer did for you what you did for me which you know i, I told a story about how I was working for the fraternity, I started writing, and now let me bring us back to there, and we'll 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 uh, jump off again. So I'm I left for a year, I came back, I have some poems that I've written. I was really close with my cousin, started hanging out with my cousin a lot, who's a bit older than I am, and his group of friends, and in his group of friends is Joey Heron, who is a police officer, and somehow you and I ended up kind of in a circle of friends kind of a thing together the way i remember it we were at uh oh what's that bar called on maryland parkway in tropicana uh house of brews yep it was house of brews and you know we're all just having a good time all of a sudden you're you're like kind of cornering me and you're like hey i heard you've been writing some poetry yep yeah i am uh cool here's here's what we're gonna do i have a show here coming up in about a few weeks you're going to open. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> yep, that's what's going to happen. So three weeks, this is the date, this is the time you need to show up. Do a good job. Something like that. <laughs> and just like that's Steve. just like me. Just like Steve. Put, yeah, well, I know where you got it from now. Steve did that to you. You did that to me. But it was such a, <coughs> such a gift because you didn't give me the, the opportunity to process it and get into my own lizard brain and say no, or I'm scared, which I was. You just said, this is what you're doing and it's how it's going to go. I'm curious, how did you even know though that I would be any good? How did you know I wouldn't like totally fuck up your, your show by opening for you and, and just bomb? I, uh, ain't nothing ventured, nothing gained, my friend. You got to roll the dice once in a while and believe in people. And I didn't think you'd fuck it up. And even if you did fuck it up a little, it's okay. You were new. And when you're new, you're not going to be perfect. And you were opening the show. You weren't going to, I didn't have to worry about any of that. I didn't even process that anyway. But I'm just telling you as an answer. Yeah. Uh, the truth is, is that I thought you would, it would be good for you to try it out. And it would have a perfect place because you had an audience that was stuck there and that was going to, there to listen to poetry, which is a tough crowd to get. Uh, strangely enough, in this city, mm-hmm. it's easier in some other cities. Uh, but to have a crowd there that's there to listen to poetry, you had a chance to flex your wings. And, you know, the opportunities were made for me. So maybe it was my way of, of, of getting the opportunities for you. I don't know because I usually don't think that much until later. I usually I'm very quick in, in the way in, in making decisions. I I tend to shoot from the heart and then worry about it later. So it was just the right thing to do. And I knew it was the right thing to do. So I did it. 
and it worked out. And I, if I haven't thanked you for that, thank you for that. Well, you're very welcome. And then let's talk about how it evolved for me from that point. So yeah. I did a, I uh, didn't, I opened for you. I did a piece, and then I think we did another one at Freaking Frog, and I remember this vividly. <laughs> Tommy Marth was there that yeah, night. God rest his soul, my dear friend. Yeah, I'm sorry to. It's okay. So Tommy Marth, saxophonist, you and him had a had a, a connection, a creative collaboration. And I just remember there, it was so cool. I didn't realize what I was experiencing, like the the profoundness of the art where, you know, you're reading your poetry and he is uh, spontaneously playing the saxophone to your poetry. And you guys talk about connection. You guys really made the connection. And Rodney, your friend Rodney, who's a... He's uh, at the time he was a teacher. Yeah, he was. public school teacher. He's still in the public school system. He's now an administrator. That of guy's the, amazing. He's, he's truly amazing. And I'll say this because it's another vivid memory I have from that time. David Figler at the time, I mean, in the scene, he was like the guy, the spoken word poetry scene that was kind of non-existent, but it was there was a little bit of a community. This is 2004, 2005 time frame. And so. You put me on stage. We did a couple of things. And then I started with my friend Antoinette, who I met in college. I started a poetry show at the Beauty Bar. They, like, just opened. So, mind you, this is 2005. Think about downtown Las Vegas. It's not what it is now. Beauty Bar was, like, the first place, you know, off of, out, out of, yeah, under the canopy. This is, like, so we did it once a month, second Saturdays. It ran for nine months. Um, and then you got to come to perform in my show. Yeah, and I really had a great performance there. And yeah. I wrote Magic Wand, which was quite a hilarious poem. <laughs> and I, that ended up on my CD, as a matter of fact. So, uh, And I wrote it on my way there, actually, in my notebook, one of my notebooks in my scrawl. While well, was actually Leilani was driving me there to that show, I wrote that poem uh, in that book, Magic Wand, about getting a colonic. <laughs> such a funny poem, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I really loved the beauty bar. That was a great show, and I love the photos that came out of that. And uh, you know, and you really were—I forgot. You know, this is this is the problem with being old and having so many experiences. Is that you stack so many experiences on so many experiences? Pretty soon, you've got so many you don't remember what the hell happened. So I'm I'm glad that you reminded me of that. And you you had a successful run with Antoine. We did. And how lovely was she? You know, I haven't seen her in a long time. I hope she's doing well. She is doing excellent. Give her my best. I've texted her no less than a dozen times leading up to this show to help me remember some things. So I think we, if you're okay with it, maybe we can do one or two poems. Um, I want to talk about Leilani because it's another takeaway of mine. Maybe we can end with a story about your dad. And I know you have to get going because you're a busy captain. I do. I have to. I have to get back over to headquarters. Um, no, let's do a poem. Okay. I, I want to hear yours first. You can't make me go first, Harry. <laughs> no way, man. And I, I'm trying to figure out, do I do a philosophical piece? I think I will. I'm going to do a, a philosophical piece. This All right. is about my path. This is about my childhood. So it's called The Bird. Little boy stands on verdant field. He's 10 years old, and the world is an immense place. Noise and light, confusion and ghosts. He's alone and afraid, except when Grandpa's face sees him and smiles. Out on the fringe he looks and there's a soft brown space in all the green finery, out of place and discreet yet obscene, somehow beckoning. He is pulled forward, tractor beam and reckoning, small shoes crunching the frozen dew, puffy jackets susurrating closer and closer to see what is held for only a few, a bird. Small, delicate, no longer alive, it lay still and final and awful. 
tiny body nestled among the roots and clover. His first sight of death is a sigh looming then breaking across the morning like a gunshot or a leaf falling, loud to those who can hear it, yet silent to the unseen. Little boy squats as only little boys can, and he stares into the sightless iris, his morning cap echoed in the black stillness of the Lilliputin eyes. Back in class, he asks why once, twice, a hundred times as is sent to the office for his questions. How can something flying across the sky, just in the blink of an eye, fall and die? They test his intelligence quotient, the word spectrum and autism, a long time in the future. Instead, his specialness is advancement and placement in the backseat of genius, where he continues to question and ask. If you were walking by and saw him, you might say, little boy, why are you crying? It's just a dead bird. He doesn't have the words, too young and lacking nuance, the tears carve angles in facial soft. Youth is the great experience, only you don't have the words for it unless you say magic or miracle or mystical. Boy, as lonely as a tree in a field of rotten dirt, learns to blend in, to match, to see eye to eye, to stop confusing the world with questions no one has answers to. He is not a fool, only innocent and true, and oh so alone and blue, but nobody knew. So he carried on the game, a shield to the jeers and leers of shadowy dancers, sinuous and flippant on the fringe of his peripheral. He learns and learns to turn his fear into mirrors, reflecting the shadows and stifling his questions, which instead become answers he may or may not know. Instead, it's just him and the quiet storm raging through his little heart. Later on, he falls and fails and flails and almost bails from the rock on which we temporarily stand. Somehow he survives and becomes a man. The question is still haunting and poking. How can something alive and well burn and rot and fall and fail? All he ever wanted was love. He just didn't know the questions. Then he found her. Alone as he, yet she knew a free way to be. All the answers pouring in and in his quest to know, he learned death is as real as the sky as the rock, as the air, and that to die is the inevitability we cannot lie or elude or deride. It is the outcome of our hope and effort, the finality of our wishes, the dream which cannot end. For when we do not wake, we too fall from the sky to lay upon the cold earth, observed as a once living thing of beauty, and now a blemish to be buried in our shell forgotten. Our soul the only smoking reminder living on in those few or many hearts we touched. We are all the bird. We all are the grass. We all are the little boy who questioned. We all are the earth and the stone. In the reflection of our life, we stand alone. Yet we are so, yet we are together in our passing, so we are truly not alone if we dare to believe in the soul. Thanks. So that's why you say all poetry should be read out loud. Yeah. <laughs> and then a step further is that the poetry read out loud by the author, there's so much emotion in that that you don't get from just reading it on your own. And that's why I love this art form. Me too. So can you just tell me a little bit, you know, what was going on when you wrote that or um, elaborate on it, the meaning behind it, the experience? Well, obviously, um, in our earlier conversation talking about connection, it's here in this poem. But when I was a little boy, I found a dead bird in the grass. and I, I didn't understand. And my, uh, not, my lack of understanding led to be, me being basically criticized 
for not understanding something I didn't understand, <laughs> which was death <laughs> at the time when I was 10. And uh, it obviously was a shaping of my life. It was part of what shaped me and brought me to that point, maybe even to that epiphany. So uh, I'm not sure, but the vision of that bird has been in my head for since I was a kid. So I just decided to take it out one day and explore it and then put it to poetry. So that's what you get. Wow. <laughs> So, I haven't written a poem since those times, like 2005, wow, that's a long 2006. Time, the poem is called, I Put My Pen Down. I used to write poems about nightclubs and my inner conflicts. I would muse about times ahead, living life like Leviticus, escaping exodus of days past when my soul was enslaved. But when I met you, I put my pen down. Not because you didn't inspire ambition and dreams or give me cause to tango and scream. It's because you made me happy, fulfilled, distracted, and thrilled. You gave me purpose, three kids, closeness, and bills. Holy fucking shit, did you give me bills. You give me space to be silly, like when I sing Disney and Gin Blossoms. You give me grief for buying Legos, but you also think they're awesome. You have a way to make me feel... Like when you say, you don't have to yell. You have a way to get me, to see myself through the eyes of our kids, to be the reason they strive, to be the reason they achieve. I can remember sitting in the dark, bottle in hand, rocking, gliding, thinking, tearing, allowing myself to see all the best of you and me dancing into tomorrow, days ahead. I can remember the first fever, early hours, scared, motionless, thoughtless, frozen you jumping into action our superhero all fear but courageous you can't be stopped and now every day a superhero to three and me and me just trying to be someone you can be proud of someone that can make you feel someone who will pick up his pen not to fill the void and empty but because there is so much inside of me that doesn't get said like i'm sorry i didn't mean it you're right no, that dress doesn't make you look beautiful. You make that dress look beautiful. I love you. I mean it. I'm really happy to be your husband. No, nobody put me up to saying that. I'm really happy to be your husband. And, and, and if you don't expect too much from me, you might not be let down. The past is gone, but something might be found to take its place. I love you, D. That's great, man. It's great right hearing you do a love poem on the air, too, because that's something I would do. It doesn't mean shit till you share it with the world. <laughs> <laughs> you have to proclaim your love from the top of the mountain, remember? That's how you do it right there. You know, as we're Beautiful talking, piece. as we're talking, that you, we talked about connection and what this does. And when my wife hears this, because she hasn't heard this, I, in fact, nobody's heard this, <laughs> I feel like that's what it is, right? It's connection. So I'm gonna get laid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Listen, you can't be more romantic than to take your heart and put it out for everyone to see because of you, someone you love. It's how I live my life every day. So talk about that because that's one of my takeaways from you. Is that something that hey, it's easy to see Harry's a is a poet and it's easy for him to gush his affection for Leilani, or is that something that you chose to do? You work at. I chose to do and I work at. It doesn't come natural to you. I don't I think I think that it's 
all the more powerful because it's difficult. Because like all things that require a crucible of sorts, they're the things that matter. So, you know, and I get a lot of ball busting whenever I post a poem for my wife online or I do something Mm -hmm. that's public. Uh, I get from other guys, I'm like, yeah, you're making us look bad. I'm not trying to make you look bad. I don't really care what anyone else thinks. I want my wife to know that my love for her is not just between me and her. It's between me and the entire world. That's how much I love her. There's not enough room in the room to contain how I feel about her. And I have no shame in putting it out there. However, it is difficult. And, you know, I don't care. <laughs> That's the beautiful thing about being an artist, right? Is that you do it because it's what's inside of you. It's what drives you. And So, you're, I mean, you're a guy's guy. You're a cop. Absolutely. You're a captain cop. I'm a tough bastard. You're a tough bastard. <laughs> and you made this, this choice. It might not come easy for somebody else. I would say... Look in yourself and think about how easy it is to just let a little bit out. You don't have to let it all out. I understand. You know, you're not going to go and write this beautiful poem that you just wrote. Somebody's not going to just go do that or, or write the poem Blackjack I wrote for my 21st anniversary. But just saying I love you and meaning it, just stop and buying flowers for no reason. If you think to do something thoughtful, we're not thoughtful. We're men. We don't think about shit. We just do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have this philosophy that <laughs> women are crazy and men are stupid. And like I said, that's, it's a matter of degree for both. And somehow we find our way. It sounds like a title for a poem. And it, it, well, it's in some, one of my poems. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just something I found philosophically. And, I, and it doesn't matter. Um, it's human beings. They're, human beings are nutty, you know? And we have to find a way to be together and, and, and to get along. And in, in Zen love, you know, you don't, it isn't the good things about people that make you love them. I mean, it does. It attracts you. Mm-hmm. But what makes sustainable love is the bad things and the horrible shit that you have to accept and wrap your arms around. If you love someone, it's not about those good things. It's about taking all that bad shit and going, you know what? I accept that. I'm not going to try to change you. I will support you, and I love you for who you are. If you can do that with your spouse, then you are well ahead of the game and in, and in a successful relationship. If you're trying to figure out how to make things different, you're probably not happy. And you're probably going to screw it up. So you probably get your shit together now, pull your head out of your ass, and start looking to accept the things that are about the person you love. And it is effort. It doesn't just happen. You have to work at it. Even if you're a poet. Even if you're a poet. Even if you're a tough guy. It doesn't matter. If you, wanted, if you, were, if you thought about what you would want, how you would want your daughter treated if you had a daughter, or how you would want your son to treat a woman, or how would you want... It, and I, I, it doesn't even have to be man and woman, because I don't want to even get that... I, if you want one human being, mm-hmm. how would you want a human being you cared about to be cared about? Mm-hmm. Would so you this, want is, this is a great jump-off point to your dad. And I, I, I know about a story, and I'd like you to share it to set this up and really emphasize this. Because you know, when, you t- when you say it, I know that this was a hard decision for you. When you, you, you were estranged from your father for a period of time, didn't talk to him, you decided to call him up, ask him to dinner. You went to Morton's, set that up, and then... Okay. Emphasize, please. I wasn't expecting this. I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. I have used this story to help friends who are going through, I told you, I, I, a lot of cops have daddy issues, and I know that sounds funny, uh, but what that means is, is they want to please their dad, you know, and I, my father's gone, he's dead. But uh, I was really fortunate because sometimes I listen, <laughs> and uh, I believe I have this philosophy now, too, in, in my myriad of philosophies that the reason your ears get bigger as you get older is so you can fucking listen. 
better. <laughs> That's how you get wisdom. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have big enough ears when we're, we're young. Not that we listen anyway, but when you get older, you, you, you got more space for hearing stuff. And I talked to a lot of people about my issues with my dad, and I was angry with him, and I was opinionated and judgmental, and I'd made up my mind. I, you know, I was so self-righteous. Oh, it's disgusting when I think back about it. But that's part of growing up and learning. And I talked to this guy who I really didn't like all that much, but he, somebody I knew, he was an acquaintance, and he told me, he, got, he, gave me, he related this story to me about his own father who was an alcoholic and had fallen by the wayside, and he reached out and helped his dad and built a relationship with him. And he knew my father because my father invited this guy to Thanksgiving every year, and I was like, well, he doesn't invite me to Thanksgiving. And he says he only invites people that have nowhere to go. And I didn't even know that about my dad. My dad had this whole island of misfit toys. So you have this perception <laughs> of my dad doesn't invite me to Thanksgiving. He just invites these strangers that are right. misfits. And then this guy gave you a different perspective of, no, <laughs> your dad is inviting people that have nowhere to go. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So that so I listened to him. So I listened. And he said this thing that, that probably one of the things that changed my life, when it's, if there's a one-sentence thing, he said, what would you do for a friend that was, that was sick? And it was profound because I had never thought of it that way. I always thought it's my dad. He's fucked up. He's an alcoholic. He's this. He's that. He's, he's the parent. He's, he owes he, me. I, I never. He turned it on its head. And yeah. It's, it's so funny how sometimes when you walk around the other side of the building, you see there's no back to the house. And you're like, oh, shit, there's no back to the house. Or, or hey, this isn't even the same house. It was profound. So with that, armed with that, and with having a little bit of wisdom, I made a decision. You set up the story. I called my father, and unfortunately, at the time, uh, he would hang around with cronies a lot, and I was really worried that he was going to have his cronies with him. And what I, they, they were just people that used to hang around with him that were like sycophants. I couldn't stand them. Of course, they probably weren't that bad, but in my perception at the time, they were sucking time from my dad that mm-hmm. I wasn't getting, so mm-hmm. there was that. But he was by himself at Morton's, and I showed up over there. He was sitting there, and he wasn't drunk. So he surprised you on two fronts. One, he wasn't hanging around his cronies. He was there one-on-one time with you, and he wasn't drunk. He was sober, you know, maybe one drink on board, I don't know, but he seemed sober to me. And he, so he, because he knew I wanted to talk about something important, and I think he wasn't sure what it was, because the last conversation we'd had had ended in me driving my motorcycle down the street and not talking to him for quite a while, over a year or two. It was pretty close to a year, year and a half, something like that, the last time. We were strange back and forth, and he told me, I believe the last thing he said to me as I went out the door is, psychology session's over, some shit like that. So, so he always had great lines. <laughs> but, so, there he is. He comes and sits down at the table. And I, I, I share this with other men a lot, and, and daughters too, they need to hear it. But for me, it was a man thing. Because I wanted this connection with my dad so bad. Um, and I didn't have it, and I was so filled with blaming him. It was like, so... <laughs> he said, uh, all right, what's this about? And I said, I just needed to tell you that I love you and that I accept you for who you are and that I will never judge you and that I will always be here for you for the rest of your life. And no matter how difficult your life is, you're going to have one person in your corner no matter what, and that's going to be me. And whether you are sober or you're drinking or you're this or you're that, I don't give a shit. I'm your son, and I'm your. I'm gonna be your friend, Dad, and I'm gonna be here for you for the rest of your life. How hard was that for you? Were your palms sweating and heart beating and all that I stuff? See, it's emotional for me now. It's, and it's, it's been, been a lot of years. Wow. So, um, well, good for you for that. So my father looks at me, 
<laughs> I don't know if he, I know he wasn't expecting that. And I just, and I meant every word. I am every word. And Otherwise, you wouldn't it. have said it. Exactly. Yeah. And he started bawling, man. He started bawling. He just sat there and cried. I've never seen him cry like that. It scared me a little bit. He's crying. And I'm like, Dad, are you all right? He's like, you don't understand the gift you just gave me. And that's when he said, for the very first time, he said, I know that I wasn't the best dad, and I'm certainly not the best grandfather, but I want you to know I've always done the best I can. And it was, I realized it's like we're so quick because we think our parents are magic, and we forget that they're people. They're human beings with the same foibles, difficulties, and, uh, you know, uh, consternations and challenges. And back then, it was a very different time, too. And, you know, my father had a whole lot of other issues on board, and here I am. And I had these grand expectations. And once I let them go, he became one of my very best friends. And for eight years, I had him as one of my very best friends before he died. And uh, I can remember the last conversation I had with him before he died. I, it's it's crystal, crystal clear in my head. You know, I walked in, and I was he was at the hospital, and he shouldn't have died. That's a whole other story. I believe they, they, they screwed up. But... Uh, I went in there and I could hear him yelling at the orderlies. <laughs> they were moving him around. He was talking shit to him. And I was in my sergeant's uniform. I was in uniform visiting him at the hospital. And he goes, "Oh, come in here, come in here." And they they walk out. And he goes, "I got a plan." He said, "Uh, we I got a whole plan. It's gonna you and me. We're gonna be set for life. It's gonna be great. I, I got it all figured out." I'm like, "What? What?" He goes, "Let's rob the Fed." <laughs> I'm like, Are you crazy? He goes, come on, a couple of shotguns, you and me. Either way, we're set for life. And I went, yeah, no I'm kidding. And and the last thing my father said to me was, tell the kids I love them, which he had never said before. And I told them, and your next, kids, my kids, and he loved my kids, but he showed his love by buying things. Was always he was giving these extravagant gifts to them, but mm-hmm. he really did love them. And uh, he told me that he said, "Tell them I love them." But he wasn't like dying or anything. He just said that, and it was so weird. I was like, "Okay, Dad." And then I left. And then that was the last time I saw him alive. He was in a coma after that. But uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that I fixed things. And I, that's why I always implore my friends that have issues with their family members. I'm like, fix that shit. Learn to accept. Quit trying to change people. If you can't love them for who they are, you you just you're not going to f- be successful. No and, love them, and love them for the bad stuff, not yeah. just the good stuff. The bad stuff. Yeah. Hey, look, the, the world is filled with it's it's. We all got a story. It's not always a happy thing, like we talked about in the beginning of this conversation. It's not always positive, but it's that's who you got. So if you want it to be successful, you need to love them and accept them through and through. And there's a power in that, man. When I told my father that stuff it was like 10,000 pounds came off of me and flew away forever to never come back and the strength that it gave me as a man is it was undeniable I mean I'm a stronger man for it and have been since and uh you know I I mean it was a if that there was a that was a watershed moment in the relationship with my father unquestionably and I know what it did for him Mm -hmm. and then I went to my sister and gave her the business on it and she did she forgave him and accepted him and had a relationship with him as well and that was a gift to him too because he he had almost given up on that ever happening because she hadn't talked to him for a long time like eight years and a gift you gave to her yeah 
but you know ultimately it all went around and but you have to put your pride aside or your freaking your I don't know if you have to be at the right age or the right time or the right experience level but at some point you've got to take your garbage and throw it away you know and just be human and if you can do that and just then you can move mountains you know within yourself so and with relationships it sounds like there's another move you know take your garbage throw it away be human but then also you know the expectations that you have with others like oh. you said you, we we believe our parents are magic they're human too they have garbage also so you know embrace the bad things is what you said yeah thank you for sharing that um let's do some rapid fire takeaways about all the different places that you come from policeman poet philosopher so i'll ask you you give a rapid fire takeaway and then we'll, we can wrap it up so 25 years as a policeman what are your takeaways? Courage, integrity, uh, all our values as police, accountability, respect for others, and excellence. That's our I care values that we have at the police department, and I've tried to put those forward in my life since I've been a policeman. I haven't always had them in my life. I've had to really, you have to work at them, but that's what values are. They're valuable, so you got to work at them. <laughs> well and, said. And uh, the nobility of what we do as police, I, I always remind other police officers to never forget it, because no matter what, man, I risk my life for complete strangers again and again and again, and I've done it because it's the right thing to do in the profession that I'm in, so I'm very proud of that, so that's my takeaway. Takeaways as a poet. Uh, connected to the world and continuing to connect, and I'm hoping that as I move forward in this retirement that I'm able to find that, uh, that connection, and it, by devoting much more of my time and energy into this. I hope that I can find another level with my poetry. Takeaways as a philosopher. There's always room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. That was a good one. Takeaways as a husband. Loyalty matters. Loyalty in your word, it means something in this world, and people forget that. Companionship and loneliness are polar opposites and you can you can have companionship and be completely lonely if you lose your loyalty you lose your way you lose the light so you need to stay on top of it communication is everything in relationship so as a husband i think it's most important that you don't forget the respect for the other person and respect yourself if you keep the respect there and the communication open you shouldn't have any problem you should be able to communicate because it's so devastating when people don't and they end up angry and bitter and terrible things happen because they know the deepest, darkest secrets about each other. So they know how to hurt them real bad. So if you're going to make promises to somebody, do your best to keep them. Takeaways from being a father. They didn't give you a fucking manual. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to be a dad, but it's incredible too. It's like the greatest thing in the world, but it's, it takes a lot of work. You know, and I think that people need to know that and that they shouldn't take it lightly being a dad, you know, being a father. Make it important and also know that you don't get to be that person. You just get to be their father. So their life is theirs. Their decisions are theirs. What do you mean by that person? You don't get to be your kid? Right. Got it. You're not them. They're them. And they are their own unique individual. I've watched many fathers beat their head against the wall because their kid didn't do they set them up for success and they went a different direction and oh my god and those control issues let it go and just be supportive 
it goes back to the to the Zen love thing. Accept them, guide them, show them the frameworks to be a good human being and to have values, but let them be who they are too, and give them the room to grow. Takeaways from being a son: you gotta love your mom. There's no excuse for not loving your mom, even if she's bad, except in the most dire circumstances. Because I do have a friend who I understand his thing. Moms owe it to their sons to be loving too, but um, I'm very proud of being a son. And my mom, I, I, the only way that you can, uh, the best way you can be a son is to be present. So make sure that you spend time, even if it's just a little bit of time, every week, either on the phone or out to dinner, if you're living far away on the phone, uh, on the computer, on the Skype, on the FaceTime, and make sure you let your mom know that you're in their life or your da- and your dad. I've lost my dad, so I talk to him in my heart. But, you know, keep your parents in your present in your life. Not every day, not every minute. You want to get away from that. Stretch out that umbilical cord. <laughs> but to be a good son is to be present and engaged. So let me say this. Captain Harry Fagel. Thank you for being here with me today on two hours sleep and eight cups of coffee. Thank you for being a friend and a mentor. And thank you for your service. And thank you as well, I am, for, uh, for this great conversation. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'd love to hear your takeaways from this episode. Make sure to leave us a review and send in your comments. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like this show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.